Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exvoyant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. Create one-on-ones your reps will thank you for, and use Exvoyant to help your sales managers create unique plans for every rep on your team. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen, and remember, don't worry, we've got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we're joined by Mike Bosworth. Mike has been a lifelong contributor to the sales profession in so many ways. He is iconic in what we do in sales, and he's been every part of what happens in our business. He's been a successful salesperson. He's been a successful sales leader for iconic companies you've all heard of. He's founded other organizations that help support and fuel the development of the sales profession, and he has written more than his share of bestsellers that are read around the world. Solution selling, customer-centric selling, and what great salespeople do are just some of the great books that have helped fuel so many great selling careers, including mine. Mike's work has had a huge impact on my personal career. Solution selling became a fundamental part of my career early on as a young salesperson. I recently shared a page from that book, Solution Selling, in a LinkedIn post, and several people asked if Mike and I would discuss this on this podcast. Mike graciously agreed, and I'm so honored to have him join us today. For those of you who don't know, we are very, very lucky to have this iconic member of the sales community join us. He's seen it, he's helped develop it, and he's going to share with us today what's relevant and what's changed and help us have a blueprint for success into the future. Mike, welcome to our show Thanks so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Rob. Hey, I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not fluffing when I tell you how much I appreciate you, man. I, as we were talking before the show started, like I, I'm a little starstruck right now to be on the phone with you and on the Zoom with you because you really did have a big impact on my career. There's thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that have impacted by you. So first, thank you for what you've done for the selling career. Thank you. Well, you know, it's... Uh... The ride has been mostly organic. You know, people for years have said, well, you know, what was your business plan for creating the solution selling organization? Because, you know, I had 50 some people doing yeah. it and stuff like that. And they're, the left-brain people of the world are always shocked when I tell them there was no plan. My, my only wish when I started my own business was to work at home, get out of the corporate political environment, and um, create content, sell, and teach. I didn't want any HR department or any (laughs) yearly budget goat dance thing that they put everybody through and all that. I was just done with that. And um, so it all just kind of went organically, like if you dropped a cork into a brook and just watched it go down and, you know, take its own path. And that's the way it's been. It's really, even though it's ended up being really lucrative for me, it was, it's really been a, a fun, passionate hobby for me. Just trying to better and better and better understand what goes on between a salesperson and a buyer and how we can make the process better for both of them, really. Because my underlying philosophy is always... Uh, learn to help your buyer buy rather than trying to learn how to sell your buyer. Because most people don't like the idea of feeling sold to that they love to buy. So let's help them buy from us. That's philosophically kind of where I've been coming from all along. Well, I like that philosophy. I think that you're the first time I ever heard that. Again, a lot of what I believe and what I've done as a salesperson started with, you know, what you wrote and, and instituted, but you're right. No one wakes up in the morning hoping someone's going to sell them something. No one does. And the whole idea of solution selling was lead your buyer to the logical conclusion that you are the best alternative. You took the time to diagnose. You took the time to figure out what he really wanted before you showed him any demo. You didn't try and prove too soon. 
you took the time to help him figure out the ROI so he could sell it upstairs. You took the time to send your agreement to their legal department and have all that stuff looked at ahead of time. So at the end, it's not, it's not an obstacle. You know, you helped him, you made it easier for him to buy. Love you it. documented his needs in such a way in your letters and emails that he could forward your email to all the other key people on the committee because you restated his pain and his vision so well that he wanted to share your email to everybody else. I mean, if you just, that's all basic solution selling, right? So before we get into the stuff like that, I'm really interested, you know, just very, very high level, Mike, because our time's going to go fast. It always does on the show. And I'm, because I know I'm so interested in what you have to say, what led you to writing that book? How did you get the knowledge? You know, what was, what was it that led you to writing that and then ultimately starting this company that you love? Well, I, again, it was organic. I started the solution selling business in 1983 and went solo for five years. Okay. Never even thought of having other people because I was so tired of the corporate bullshit. And then my clients, mainly my VP of sales clients, kept bugging me and say, well, Mike, I want to do what you do. I want to do what you do. And, but I didn't want to have employees or any of that stuff, so I found a bright IP lawyer, and he says, well, we can write up a license agreement, and you can license other people to use your stuff and send you a royalty. And so I said, great. And so I started that in 1988. And by the mid-90s, I had over 50 people out there wow. sending me royalty checks. It was amazing. And then in 1999, I, uh, oh, the book, though. I got to answer your question. So I started the business in 83, was solo for five years. Then I had affiliates. And the, the deal the affiliates had to do is they had to use current material. They had to send me course feedback forms from all the people that go through their workshop, their solution selling workshops. And they had to come role play coach with me once a year and wow. come do an affiliate meeting once a year. So I was, you know, trying to make it so no matter who bought solution selling from one of them that they had, you know, as much as possible, the same experience. Makes sense. Love so, it. After ten, after so ten years in business, by nineteen early nineties, my affiliates were saying, "We need a book. We need a book. We need a book." And God, I was feeling just too lazy <laughs> to write a book. And so one of my affiliates, a guy named Howard Eaton, he's a former CIA China specialist. Wow, Canadian guy who speaks Chinese, really bright and fun. He said, "I'll ghostwrite it for you." So. Okay. I said, all right, we agreed that he get 20. He wrote it for me and researched it and organized it. And when I read it, I hated it. <laughs> okay. Because it wasn't my voice. It didn't sound like my password. So I had to go back and re rewrite it in my voice. And that's what I did. So instead of taking 18 months to write it from scratch, I could rewrite what he did in six months. Oh, Kept cool. all the organization and everything. I just, you know, he was more didactic than me. He was always saying, remember to do this and never do this and always do this. And that's not me. Mm. Right? So I get it. that's how the book came. But once the book came out, it was a turning point for the business. Because before that book came out, the largest client any of us ha ever had was around 300 million a year. Okay. In, in revenue. Right. After that book came out, IBM and Microsoft quickly signed up. Wow. So because before, before having the book, they didn't want to do business with a guy working out of his bedroom in his house. There's a big shot for that, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story, man. I appreciate right. you going back and sharing that with us. Let's get into it. There's, there's, a, there's like three or four things that I know we got to get into and, you know, we, we're going to run out of time. I want to start with what the the audience asked for. So part of that book, Solution Selling, I read and I had a chart. It's the various shifting needs of the buyer at different parts of the sales process. And it's, it starts, you know, and it ends with risk. 
And, and my question was, is risk no longer something people just talk about at the end of the buying cycle? Because people are like hunkered down mode, are they looking at risk earlier in the buy cycle? And that had people's weighing in on it. And then the icon, Mike weighs in and says, I got this from Neil Rackham, which blew my mind. I didn't know that. Can you talk about that chart just a little bit as and what, what's in that chart and kind of introduce it to our listeners if they don't know it? They were an evolution too, because um, without getting into too much detail, we could spend a whole nother podcast just on this, but uh, I was the project manager for Xerox Computer Services in their pilot of Neil Rackham's spin program. That's amazing, by the way. That is amazing. And so my people in Xerox Computer Services were pushing back hard on spin. Really? You know, and something's wrong with it and da, 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 da. And so one night I was having dinner with Neil Rackham and I was telling him about the pushback. And he drew these four curves on a cocktail napkin. Okay. He said, when a buyer buys, what's important to them shifts as they go through a buy cycle, as they buy. Okay. In the very beginning, it's do I have any kind of a need to change? And I don't know, did you, did you listen to uh, the, uh, the thing I did on the buying curves that I shared? Yeah. I did, but for our audience that's listening to you right now, just at a high level, if you want to share it, that's great because they may or may not have. Well, I use the example of somebody buying a new home. Right. Just to understand it from the perspective of being a buyer. Um, so most human beings, when they buy, well, most human beings don't like to move, right? It's really a hassle. You have to pack everything up and throw away things that you don't really want to throw away and, and relocate and leave your family and friends and stuff. And so usually there's a pretty big pain threshold that causes people to move. And it's like, uh, your spouse got transferred to a different city and, her job is better than yours. And so you decide to take it and go. So whatever reason you have to move, once you have to move early in phase one, which is solution development, you go from pain, oh, should I have to move to, okay, I need minimum three bedrooms, prefer four. I wanna be within 20 minutes drive of my office and I wanna be in one of three good school systems. So that's your vision. So the only thing is, if you look at the shifting buyer concerns, besides need in phase one, cost is an initial concern too. Right. Most people don't have an unlimited budget. If you didn't have an, if you had an unlimited budget, boy, then it'd be more of a, uh, I don't know, you just go out and browse and if you see something, you buy it, right? Right. but this is more for most people. And so it's within, within $350,000 or half a million dollars, whatever your budget is, I want to have four be- three bedrooms, prefer four, da, 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 da. Okay. So now you are at the end of phase one. Now you got your vision. And so in phase two, you go looking at houses. Right. Right. Now you're out matching up each piece of property you view, walk through to your vision that you had, that you shared with your real estate agent. And a lot of real estate agents blow it right there, Rob, because the first place they take them out to see isn't the one that matches their vision. It's the one that the real estate agent needs to try and close because they've had the listing for 97 days and they're going to lose it. Got it. Right? So a lot of real estate sales have been lost the first time the real estate agent takes the buyer out because they're not showing them something that matches their vision and their budget. Love it. So anyway, but let's say, so in 
phase two, you look at the average seven pieces of property. And at the end of phase two, you pick the one that seems to meet 97% of your needs for 104% of your budget. And you decide this is as good as it's going to get. And so now you're ready to pull the trigger, right? And make an offer, right? right? right. And what freaks salespeople out when they're on the other end of this is that the buyer, you, now if you're looking at, if you're the buyer, in phase two, you were looking at the good points of all those seven houses you looked at. Right. Right? Oh, this one's got a great view. And oh, I like the fireplace in this one. And, you know, whatever. You're, you're trying to look at the positives. But when you finally pick the one that you're going to buy, you go negative. Because now you're in risk. Now that fear of risk comes, and that's what drives phase three. And then you also see that the cost curve became price. Yes. All right. You wouldn't have gotten the phase three if it hadn't fallen within your budget. So it's already cost justified. But in phase three, you not only have to get over your risk, part of your risk is am I getting the best price? That's right. And that's a different concern than I can only spend 350000 which is in the beginning. And so I'm trying to educate salespeople because so many salespeople during phase two with their buyers, if they call their buyer up, you know, if you're my sponsor, Rob, and I'm trying to sell you some kind of software system for your company, typically over the years, if I call you, you get back to me within 30 minutes. Right in phase two but in phase three well now when you're the buyer and doing your termite inspection you're not going to return my call right away in 30 minutes because you know i'm going to say come on rob let's go let's get you guys need it i need it let's go let's go let's go you don't want that pressure That's so right. you're avoiding me and when you avoid me that freaks me out <laughs> so a lot of sales we all know that freak out phase, man. That freak out phase sucks. The term yeah, now is think about all the business that's been lost over the years, Rob, by the salesperson freaking out. Where they had it one two thirds of the way through, they freaked out and lost it. Hundred percent, Mike. So I want to make sure all. I say this back to everybody because again, your chart has been. I see it rep like when I do a simple Google search, shifter buying concerns, Mike Bosworth. You see your chart like replicated by people, and some give you credit and some yeah, don't. Yeah which pisses me off because it's your deal. Um, that's why I'm glad I've got you on the phone. I'm on the, on the Zoom right now. So phase one is they're mostly concerned about what, what they need. And secondary is, will it fit in my budget? We call it cost. Then we get into the middle. I've got my short list, my two or three people, my two or three houses or seven house, whatever. But if it's, yeah. a, I've got two or three people that all probably will have the right cost. Now I got to have the best solution or the vision for what's going to work best for my organization. So that becomes most important. And but that's get, logical. Right? Right? That's right. That's logical. In the first phase, the salesperson that gets to be column A is the one you like the best. The one ah, you want to cool. buy from the most. Right? So phase one is emotional. Phase two is logical. Phase three is emotional again. This is good. I like the way you say that. Um, for the buyer, now, I'm taking the buyer. Right. This is all from the buyer's perspective. Yeah, viewpoint. Yeah. yeah. From a salesperson, everything seems emotional sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got a lot riding on it. So then, when you shift out, what I like about this curve, and we'll, we'll, when we post this, we'll make sure that we get your your chart uh, credited to you, of course, uh, in there, so people can see it. I'll I'll send you the one I want you to use. Perfect. That'd be yeah. great. Here's here's what I like about it, Mike. If I remember correctly. Though, yes, number one is risk, and now cost has turned to price, but the other two fall off. They're almost insignificant at this, at this point. Am I right. interpreting that right? You are interpreting that right, because at the, at the end of phase two, the buyer has made the decision that this product meets my vision. Right. In phase three, it's do I want to buy from this company? Do they keep their promises to their customers? Are they holding anything back from me? Are there any hidden costs? You know, all those risk-oriented things. And then 
they want to be convinced they, they're getting the best price. Right. And so that's, if, I'm, if I'm buying from you and I want to be convinced I'm getting the best price, I say to you, Rob, I say, Rob, your, your price is just too high. What's the best you can do? And you let me call my manager and you, well, I can take 5% off. And then I say, you know, Rob, I'm sorry we got this far, but I expected more from you. I'm going to, I'm going to keep looking. And I get up and start walking <laughs> to the door. Yep. Yep. And uh, we've all seen that too, especially me. I've, my career has been in software sales and that happens at the end every time. I think I love, I use your analogy. This is another one of yours. I love it. It's they ring the washcloth. The washcloth wash analogy. Yeah, that's yeah, what's I, happening out there in price negotiation. Yeah. In share with my, my listeners because the only person I've ever heard it from is you. Will you share that analogy? Yeah. Well, I say to, I say to my classes, I say, uh, how many of you, they're usually in a hotel. How many of you using those nice white washcloths they give you in your, your rooms? And they all, two thirds of them raise their hand. And I say, well, what do you do when it gets full of water? And they say, well, we wring it up. And then I ask the big question. I said, when do you stop ringing? And they say, when it stops dripping. Right. And then I say, so in your buyer's mind, you are a washcloth. And as long as you're dripping, they're going to keep squeezing. And then after nothing comes out, they give it one last good twist before they hang it yeah, up. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. And you take some stomach to handle that, especially when you're behind quota and worried that if you don't get this deal, you're going to lose your job. So I found that that principle is a timeless principle. And when people start twisting, you got to make sure nothing comes out. And I think it was you that I learned from the better thing to do is add stuff too, rather than take stuff out. Well, and, the other thing I always have done with my clients is I coach them into having three polite no no's in their pocket. Hmm. The first polite no is, oh, Rob, I know you're probably getting pressure from your CFO to, to get this thing down, but I've been straight with you all the way. And really, this is a... I think the best price I, I, I'm ever going to be able to do, and if we go back and look at the value, it's paying for itself in seven months. You know, it's a plight. No, it's, it's, it's just reaffirming why it's a good decision versus, well, that's the best I could do. And well, then I guess you don't want my business and getting all into that crap. Right. Most buyers, after the second plight, no, they, they just say, oh, you're right. And they go ahead and they sign. In other words, it never even gets to be a negotiation. It's, you know when it becomes a negotiation? When you draw lines in the sand? After, after three plight no's. Okay. And if he still is squeezing me, then I say, all right, Rob. All right, Rob. The only way I'm going to be able to do anything for you is if you can do something for me in return. What's the buyer say? Like what? Like what? Yeah. Now, do you think maybe I should have thought of ahead of time what I'm going to ask for? You better have. You think? Yeah. <laughs> so I said, I would say something like, well, if, if you can get me the business this quarter and we only have two more days in this quarter, then... I'm going to exceed my number and I can go to my CFO and I might be able to get him to do something. But if I do that, you're going to have to agree to that, da, 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 da. and you get your trade. Let me ask you a question about that. Now that you brought that up, I have an interesting idea on that. So a question on that. So a lot of times when you put a deal like that, where you say it's a time sensitive deal, it's got to be signed by the quarter. Uh, and then the quarter comes and goes, and then they still want that lower price. How do you handle that? You got, well, you know, sooner or later, what, what a no is, you know what a no is? No Come more on. drips. Yeah. Okay. So you got to have the stones <laughs> to say no politely. What you don't want to do is get into a fight. Yeah. If your lizard brain takes over, if your fight or flight brain takes over as a salesman, you're, you're screwed. I've, I've seen deals over the years where they were lost by the salesperson who misbehaved because the buyer was squeezing them too hard and the salesperson freaked out. 
Hmm. Okay. Like it. So, so I like that. Let me ask the question then let's go back to the shifting concerns. So we start with need and price. We get to solution and vision. We finish with risk and cost. And, um, uh, we finished with risk and price. Price. My bad. You're right. I apologize. Thank you. And so we, so the, what's the price you're going to pay? So what I'm asking, what started this was I see right now what companies are still buying when they have problems they have to solve. Sure. But it seems like right now they really say, what's the risk of not solving that problem is an earlier conversation than a later conversation. Are you seeing that? Do you disagree? Do you agree? What are your thoughts around that? I think that today for products and services where the buyer already knows how to use the product being sold, mm -hmm. like for instance, if I were going to sell you a set of headphones, do you know how to use headphones, Ron? Yeah, I used them yeah. a time or two. There's no salesperson necessary at all in those sales. Okay. Today, people love to buy on the internet without having a salesman. Okay. Look at Amazon. Going crazy right now. Crazy. So the world I have always operated in is high difficulty selling. Selling something that's new technology. It's never been done before. We're looking for innovators and early adopters. We don't have any existing customers. It's intangible. It's perceived as expensive. It's sold to committee. It's new. It's a paradigm shift. That type of a sale, we still need human beings to do. Right? I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So as soon as something gets easy to buy for most people, salespeople aren't necessary. Smart websites can sell the hell out of them. They Smart websites sell 24 by 7. Makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So for a harder, more difficult thing to sell then, let's say it's like a software company that's competing, either it's highly competitive or it's a newer technology. Uh, I'm going to ask the same question now and, and get, see what you think about it is, is, has that, are the buying concerns any different? Are they still the same? Is, is, is that Absolutely. a timeless deal? Timeless, timeless. And I, uh, Somebody, a lady in my class once told me, and I thought about it, and I thought she was right. She says, I go through these curves when I buy a Snickers at the drugstore. <laughs> Do awesome. I have a vision? Yes. Do I find something that meets my vision? Yes. Is there a risk? Yes. Fuck it. I don't care if I'm going to get a little fatter. And cost isn't an issue because it's, you know, 35 cents. Whatever. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I love it. Oh, those are good. Let's, let's move off of those. I appreciate you talking about that. Any final thoughts on the shifting needs or you feel like we've addressed it in a way that's, that, that you're comfortable with? Um, no, I'm going to send you the, the, the current chart, which has got level of concern on the left and time on the right. And, it's, and on the bottom, it says, based on the research of Neil Rackham, I'm trying to give Neil the chops for the curves. I put in the phases. Okay. So the curves were a cocktail napkin from Neil. I love it. What a great story. And then I put in the phase one, phase two, phase three. I put in the dotted lines and labeled the phases. So that's Mike Bowser. So this love is really a collaboration between Neil Rackham and Mike Bowser. This chart. Let's shift into some of your newer work. Let's shift into the storytelling. You were sharing with me a little bit of the, you know, some of the stuff around some of the findings that you have and why you did this work. You want to talk a little bit about, about especially your, your law of 80% that you were sharing with me. I think that our listeners yeah, find well, that interesting. You know, what I first learned about the 80-20 rule at Xerox, and that's why they hired Neil Rackham. Because way back in 1979, 20% of their salespeople, and this is the big copier giant, four right. five billion years. 20% of the salespeople are bringing in 80% of the revenue. And the holy grail of sales productivity has been, how can we lift the bottom 80%? 20, right. Top 20% is doing great. How do we lift the bottom 80? So when I went into solution selling, my mission was to lift the bottom 80%. That's what I was trying to sell to my vice president of sales clients. 
Okay. In 19, when was, in 2008, my last year of customer-centric selling, we had an affiliate meeting and we had a guy named Greg Alexander, who's the CEO of Sales Benchmark Index. Okay. And he put up a chart that said 8713. He said, remember the old 80-20 rule? He says, it's gotten worse. We just did a survey of 1,100 B2B companies and 13% of the salespeople brought in 87% of the revenue. Really? And I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach because my whole mission was to lift the bottom 80%. He just showed me statistically that the best have gotten best, better and the worst have gotten worse. Wow. So that's when I, it's like all the stars were aligned. Uh, a guy who got his master's degree in storytelling called me and said, you know, as a sales trainer, I think you should be using story. And a buddy of mine was doing some brain science. They had a guy in an MRI in San, in San Diego and they showed the, when they, when the guy anticipated a brain, a story coming, the left side of his brain shut down, the right side opened up. Wow. There, so it's all these pieces coming together. And then the, the um, whole idea that the reason the bottom 80% or 87% are struggling is not sales process oriented, it's connection oriented, that they were having a difficult time connecting and building trust with strangers. And that's what the top 20% do intuitively. So with story, we have put together a model to build talent and 10 stories that teaches engineers and geeks and scientists and accountants and financial planners and, you know, geeky people who are in sales. Right. How to connect. So that's that book. So 80% have difficulty in connecting and building trust with strangers. Yeah. That's interesting. I, 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 I'm one, I'm sitting here processing that right now and it, it matches up with so many other things like the fear people have, for instance, of, of public speaking generally. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, you know, I think that if I'm, maybe I'm wrong, you'll know better than me. I, I think that if I'm remembering the study the right way, Mike, many people fear public speaking more than they fear death. Right. That's correct. <laughs> right. And this whole is, this whole problem and the lack of communication skills and storytelling skills and listening skills, yeah. to me, it's a family of origin problem. And when, when I've talked to more and more natural salespeople, in their upbringing, they had the good fortune of being around adults that spent time with them and asked them questions and shared stories with them and made them feel equal in their opinion and taught them to argue their side. And, you know, that's a life skill that a minority of kids are really getting these days, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure it is. I think of my own children. Man, I got kids sitting in my room with their heads down on a freaking device and I'm sitting in a chair across the room and I get a text message from them asking me a question when all they had to do was open their mouth, right? And I was a guest on a podcast, I think called The Amazing Dad or, or, or something like that. And the advice I gave all dads is dad should be the family leader of stories at the dinner table every night. Like all that. devices are off and... Per Brene Brown, dad's got to be vulnerable first. So dad tells them, today we're going to, each, each day we're going to have a different type of a story. Today we're going to tell a story about a screw up. And I'll tell you my screw up today. Like I, was, I was driving to work. This guy cut me off. I got so furious, I followed him past my off-ramp for 10 minutes before I finally pulled <laughs> up, and I just started hitting myself in the head. In other words, dad can be vulnerable and then start going around the table and getting everybody to share. And That's awesome. And if you keep doing it, and it's sacred time, nobody's got their devices on at the dinner table. I like They're it. not at the dinner table. And so let, 
You know, if a dad isn't strong enough to do that, his kids are going to prison. <laughs> so let's parlay that into the last few minutes that we have together. We got about five more minutes. All right. Let's, par let's parlay that into what should sales leaders do? We've talked about two topics. We've talked about shifting concerns. We've talked about the need to, to con connect with strangers and build trust through stories. If you were to sit here and say, listen, my last five minutes that we talked, what should sales leaders, we're the sales leadership podcast, what should sales leaders be really getting right right now relative to at least those two things? Well, I, the, the hot button for me for sales leaders is get your people, your salespeople, your frontline salespeople to document in a letter back to the prospect their understanding of their pain, their understanding of their vision, a proposal for proof, a proposal, you know, to sit down and run some numbers. Because if my salespeople all have these things in writing, then I can judge the quality of that opportunity on the forecast in two minutes scanning those letters. Why do you think more don't do that? Because I, I coach a lot of sales leaders, and I think you're right. I, I don't think we get that very often. Why do you think that is? Well, sales managers want to believe, just like salespeople do. And most good salespeople, maybe they're in the bottom 80% on closing business, but they're really good at convincing their boss how good it's going to be, right? percent for happy years, right? Well, they, the, some of these salespeople have a strong sunshine pump. Right. Hey, Rob, I know I haven't closed anything in, in 90 days, but buddy, this is the month. The ABC company loves us. They love our technology. They're going to buy. It's going to put me 130%. I'm going to Hawaii. You're going to Hawaii. This is going to be great. Yes. Now, I pump that up to you as a sales leader. You have to take my word for it, and I sell you emotionally, and now you pump it up again to your manager, the regional sales manager, and the sunshine gets pumped all the way up to the top. <laughs> and then, why didn't it happen? Why didn't it happen? Why didn't it happen? Why didn't it happen? And the time we go through this at the end of each month and the beginning of the next month, think of the selling time we're losing right. is having those discussions. So Mike, one of the things that I found and I believe in, in, in what you're saying, that that's the thing you want your leaders to give them to document those things, you know, the pain, the vision, the proposal for, for proof, probably the members that the people that need to be included in the making a decision. Right. Yeah. The whole deal. Yeah, it seems like more decisions are requiring consensus. People are unwilling to make unpopular decisions right now. Right. Yeah. So, so but the beauty of that is that if, if the vision and the pain are articulated, our sponsor will copy that letter to everybody in the buying committee. Right. So what I call that is, I like to say we're trying to create, transform our customers from spectators to participants. And the sooner you can tra get, transform them from a spectator to a participant, my experience has been the more predictable opportunities become. Any, how soon would you do that documentation that you talked about? Is that a late stage deal, an early stage deal? Is it all the way through? What are your thoughts on that? What documentation? What you're talking about, documenting the pain, the vision, proposal, proposal, proposal. Uh, I'll send you a couple of slides right out of our training manual. Cool. So, but, but you would tell our listeners that leaders should be asking for that kind of stuff early in the process? Leadership should be making all their evaluation decisions of any opportunities in progress that are going to go on the leadership's forecast from personally inspecting the key letter documenting this stuff because it's, it. it's going to smoke out whether this is real or not so that's a so it's a it's a physical verified outcome that you're looking for physical verified outcome yeah i love it and the salesperson isn't going to have the balls to send fantasy to the prospect course not no right it, you know so it's it's all these forms it's a waste of time and i don't think salespeople should do forecasts hmm. i think salespeople should be held to a bar of a certain amount of quality pipeline and now i can know it's quality pipeline as a manager from the way i inspect it i like that yeah 
Well, we, uh, <clears throat> we always wrap up every show, Mike, with uh, similar three kind of questions. I haven't prepared you for it. I never do. I always like to get gut reaction on these. So we're almost out. We've got just a couple minutes. I got three quick ones for you. Ready? Yeah. Number one, biggest sales leadership challenge and how do you overcome it? You may have already given it to me based on what I've you just said. I've already given it to you. <laughs> and you've told me how we overcome it. I think it's a good one. I, I think you're right. Getting those verified responses, I think, is everything. Uh, I've seen written correspondence between the seller and the buyer. Every decision made about a deal is based on the written correspondence between your salesperson and the buyer. I love it. Okay. Number two, when you've helped organizations build teams and you've built teams for yourself, is there a favorite kind of interviewing concept or question or thing you want to learn about someone? Uh, And what are you looking for when you do that? I'm looking for how they would manage me long-term if I was their prospect. Ooh, how do you do that? I would ask them, take me through step-by-step your most successful software sales and implementation from a previous client where you store. How'd you find it? How'd you hear about it? Who'd you compete with? Who were the key people? What was the pain? What was the vision? How did you prove it? How did you cost justify it? How did you negotiate the deal? And how did you win? Yeah. Yeah. So you know they aren't getting lucky. It was intentional. Yeah. 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 Love it. And if they say, you know, if if the the thing is a lot of salespeople are dumb enough to tell you their biggest deal was dumb luck. You know, yeah. in an interview, and That's I'm not going to hire that guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike. Last one. We found that readers, I'm sorry, leaders are readers. Is there anything you'd recommend that our, our leaders that are listening to you around the world? We got thousands around the world listening to you. What should they get their hands? I don't care if it's a book that you turn pages or an audible, or if it's bite-sized chunks like a podcast or a or blog. Anything that you would say, hey, this is something you might want to uh, process right now. What's Daniel Pink's? He's got so many good ones. The latest one, though, where everybody's a salesperson. Yeah, that, that's good. The sell is human. That's the sales it. human. Yeah, that's a very guys, good one. Really, sales has still got a stench on it, the term. It does. And uh, if we can change the definition of selling to influencing, influencing people to do difficult things that need to be done, you know, it takes a, it. a lot of the stench off. Yeah. Removing the stench of sales. I love that. Yeah. Mike, you're so, this has been amazing. We are, we've gone longer than we expected. And I, I just am so appreciative that you would take a little time to talk to our listeners. Any final thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap up and tell them how to get a hold of you if they need to? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. I got a Facebook page. So both those places you can find me. Mike Bosworth Leadership on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. Mike, so good. I'm so grateful you talk about the shifting concerns. I'm so grateful you talk about this storytelling and influencing concept. I I think that influencing concept might be a podcast all on its own that we might do another time. So he is helping remove the stench off of sales. He's been shifting the bottom to 80% for years. He is an icon in the sales community, and I am so grateful that we had him join us today. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. And as I say to everyone, my friend, happy selling. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? But first, I want to thank those of you that have joined my Patreon community, Sales Leadership United. It has been flat out amazing, like mind boggling to me to see the community grow so quickly. I get a lot of requests from sales leaders and salespeople around the world looking to go deeper. And places like LinkedIn are awesome, but they're cluttered, they're noisy, and really it's limited on how much impact you can create. So I created Sales Leadership United to provide a community of sales leaders that are committed to becoming legendary, iconic leaders of those companies that they, that they lead. And if you haven't given Sales Leadership United a look yet, And if you've ever enjoyed any of the podcast episodes or any of the other content that I've provided, please do me a solid. Check out Sales Leadership United today. 
I'm telling you, this is a tool that will help you make the second half of 2020 one you'll be really proud of. I have much of the very best content I've ever created, and it's presented in a way where you can simply search by topic to gain access to what I've seen work around the world. In addition, I have exclusive content available only to members of Sales Leadership United. Modern insights, frameworks, live trainings, coaching structures, made-for-you sales meeting tools uh, that are ready to go right now. You can use them today. So if you have ever, and I mean ever, liked anything I've shared on the show, please check out Sales Leadership United at patreon.com forward slash sales leadership united. Now, I'm so appreciative to Mike for joining us today. And kudos to Greg Caesar for suggesting that I get Mike on the show when I made a post on LinkedIn on that shifting buyer concern model. So Greg, my man, this one's for you, brother. Mike really made it clear from the moment he introduced himself that what great salespeople do is help people buy rather than focusing on how to sell. And that's a big deal. That's not just semantic. Uh, In fact, you need to be stopping what you're doing right now and think about that. Are you helping people buy or are you focusing on how do I get the sale? Because in a world that's changing faster than it ever has, the concept of helping people buy might be more important than it has ever been. Right now, it seems as though there are no quote-unquote discretionary funds And every single decision is landing on the CFO's desk before it can go anywhere. And as a result, in a world where consensus buying is more important than it's ever been, helping people buy is more than just a sales methodology. It needs to become a part of your sales DNA. So I had Mike on to discuss the the shifting buyer concerns model. And it's an awesome blueprint. It's a great blueprint. And I think it's still relevant. Um, I think risk is something that needs to be considered and discussed the whole way through now not just at the end. And I think with my conversation with Mike is more than just the shifting uh, shifting concern model as well. So I want you to sit back and think for a second, like legit, right? Write this down and break it down. Am I helping people buy or am I trying to sell? You might want to make like one of those key diagrams. And on the left, what do I do if I'm trying to help people buy? On the right, what do I do if I'm trying to help just move the sale along? And I would look over every part of your your process, right? From earning calendar time to dollarizing the reason to change to um, uh, getting access to others on the decision team to uh, getting access to the procurement people to getting a deal signed and implemented. And on the one side, what are the things that we do if we're trying to help them buy? And on the other side, what are the things we do if we're just focusing on how do I sell and advance a deal? Here's the reality I think you're going to find. If it's, if it's about us and it's about selling, it's going to feel like work. And it will probably feel a little awkward to the buyer. If it's about them and it's about helping them win, it's going to be much more natural. So here's the question. Do you create a sales experience that a customer or a prospect will actually thank you for? That's a good question. Are they looking forward to calls from you or are they dodging calls from you? Uh, even to this day, I have people that welcome calls from me and I have other people that dodge calls from me. And to me, that's a real good litmus test for what kind of value that I provide. If I'm providing value, they may not be able to take my call right away, but they'll get back to me. And if, if I'm not adding value, they're going to hide from me. And so you got to be introspective and say, how do I, how do I switch that? You know, it's, it's such a good indicator of the type of experience that you're providing. So I love Mike's perspective on sales. Everything comes back to how do you help the client succeed? And if you can help your team's engagement activities map back to being more helpful rather than just being a deal chaser, then you've got a chance to earn perhaps your most important promotion. The best promotion you'll ever get will never come from the company you work for. The best promotion will come as you get promoted by your customer from vendor to part of the team. That promotion is something that changes everything. It changes your pricing, it changes your cycle times, it changes your win rates, it changes how you renew and expand. I'm telling you, it changes it all. So the sooner you earn that promotion, the more successful you'll be. Help your reps engage in a way where they're helping people buy rather than just focusing on how to sell. Finally, I really love Mike's discussion on breaking the 80-20 rule and, and really how storytelling can be helpful in doing that. As you push into the second half of 2020, you really need to help each rep on your team do at least 5%. And I would say, how do you get them 10% more than if they'd been left on their own? This is an area that you should be emphasizing as a leader. 
Storytelling will be a huge way in helping your lower performers have a better year. Dive into the stories that matter. Get good at those stories. This is not a year to hope that the 80-20 rule will be good enough. Um, you know, we, we need to help every single rep find ways to improve more because they work with you than if anybody else had been involved. So Mike, my friend, thank you for joining us. Mike's an icon in our fields. You can find his shifting concerns model online. Do a simple search on shifting buyer concerns, Mike Bosworth, and you'll see like 50 versions of it that all come from him. Um, or you can find them in my Patreon community. If, you, if you're a member of the community or if you're going to sign up for it, um, uh, we're going to have a conversation around that in there. And, and, and I'm excited uh, to have a conversation in there and share some stuff around that as a result of this episode. I think you'll be glad you did if you get a, get a hold of that model. Focusing on shifting concerns and the stories that help you navigate these concerns will help each rep on your team experience more success. So, in addition to thanks to Mike, thanks to each of you, our listeners. I really appreciate your feedback. Appreciate your feedback. I appreciate that you're mentioning us on LinkedIn. I appreciate your five star reviews on iTunes. So keep mentioning us on LinkedIn. Keep uh, giving us the reviews on iTunes if you think that we're that we're worthy of it. Um, and thanks to those of you that have reached out for the one-on-ones. I still have that same offer. For those of you who might not have heard it, if, if you want to revisit your one-on-one, I've, I've found that the one-on-one is more important now than it's ever been. It's important to have an engagement approach to one-on-ones. It's important to have an inspiration approach to one-on-ones. It's important to make sure that we, that we get to the true drivers of behaviors and belief. Okay, And we've got to do that in our one-on-ones. So I want to help you do that. No, you know, no strings, no cost. It's, 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 it's what I want to do to every, with every single member of the, of the sales leadership podcast community. So reach out to me at rob at com, And I want to help you make the one-on-one your number one tool. So here's finding, you know, what we get, what, what's my here's to this week? This week, here's to making it more about helping people buy than focusing on how to sell. Help your team become great at becoming helpful at every single experience point. And to do it, help them understand the stories that really fuel the success. Help those stories become their stories. You can break the 80-20 rule and you can get that most important promotion when you become promoted to a member of the customer's team rather than being just that vendor. And that's the promotion that I hope that you're, that you're going to chase, right? The, the, the chase that you should have is, how do I get promoted from being vendor to part of the team? Wish you good luck. Wish you happy selling. And as always, don't worry. Just execute because we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exvoyant, the modern sales leadership platform for Salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com. <laughs>